Please turn in your Bible to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14, where this morning Mark invites us to overhear our Lord pray in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his arrest and crucifixion. Each time I have the privilege to preach from Holy Scripture, I I am aware of my need for God's grace. I've never grown comfortable standing here and always am aware of my need for God's grace. But I am keenly aware of my inadequacy for this sacred task this morning. Uh, I feel it in a most pronounced way because of this text. I'm, I'm helped by my historical hero, Charles Spurgeon. It appears he felt a similar weakness when he approached this task and this text in particular. In a sermon that he preached on this text, he prepared his congregation with these words. Spurgeon said, Since it would not be possible for any believer, however experienced, to know for himself all our Lord endured in mental suffering and hellish malice, It is clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. And then he said, Jesus himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden. So, it is far beyond my capacity to describe what Jesus experienced in the garden. Jesus himself must give you access by his spirit to the wonders of Gethsemane. And I'm convinced, by the way, he's eager to do so. So, I invite you. Let's go. Let's go to the garden where I trust the Spirit of God will reveal to us what the Son of God endured there for sinners like you and me. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. Let's behold the wonders of Gethsemane. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying, the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. 
for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I find a verse from a well-known hymn particularly helpful as we contemplate what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. The hymn writer cries out, Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. I think this verse from this hymn actually forms a most appropriate approach to our visit to Gethsemane this morning. We, we draw near to this garden in order to understand. We draw near to this garden in order to take in what it meant to him, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. And by observing our Lord in the garden of Gethsemane and overhearing him pray, we discover what it meant to him, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. This passage uniquely reveals what it meant to him since the source for this narrative could be none other than the Son of God himself for the disciples were asleep much of the time he was praying and even when they were awake, they didn't get what was taking place in the garden. At some point, after the resurrection and before his ascension, he described for them what it meant for him, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. And this is what it meant to him. This is what it meant for him. It meant resolving to endure God's righteous wrath for our sin through the experience of human weakness. That's what it meant. Resolving to endure God's righteous wrath against our sin, for our sin, through the experience of human weakness. Actually, this scene gives us a unique glimpse into the humanity of Jesus Christ. The humanity of the Son of God is actually uniquely on display in the Garden of Gethsemane. To observe what he experiences here and to overhear him pray is actually to encounter the mystery of the incarnation. Through the mystery of the incarnation, God the Son became a man. The divine one became truly and fully human. While remaining truly and fully God, he became truly and fully man. So, Let us marvel together afresh this morning at this mystery. The eternal Son of God, fully divine, became a man, fully human, and embraced human frailty and was vulnerable to its limitations and temptations, yet, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, without sin. And this should simply cause us to marvel this morning. And we should not only marvel at his humanity, but we should be profoundly grateful for his humanity. For his humanity is essential 
for our salvation. Essential and not optional. For if he was not truly and fully man, he could not be our substitute. He could not stand in our place as our substitute and suffer for our sins. So as we observe his humanity in the garden, we really, we should both wonder and worship throughout our observations this morning. In Gethsemane, his sinless humanity is on full display. And here we discover what it meant to him, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. What did it mean? What did it mean for Jesus to suffer for our sin through the crucible of human weakness? First, it meant relational abandonment. It meant relational abandonment. Beginning with Gethsemane and throughout his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, he is abandoned. He is alone. As the hour of his crucifixion approaches, he would would make his way to the cross alone. He would not have the support of his friends. And Mark draws our attention to this, and he emphasizes in his gospel this experience of aloneness, beginning actually with Jesus' prediction in verse 27. Mark 14, verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You will all fall away. The sheep will be scattered. Jesus then takes Peter, James, and John into the garden with him, and he asks them to watch and pray, and instead of watching and praying, they fell asleep. And when he is arrested, we read in verse 50 that they all left him and fled. So it's clear that he would walk the road to Calvary alone. Mark structures this passage in order to draw our attention to this harsh reality that Jesus is abandoned and he is alone as he makes his way to a hill called Calvary. It's been a few times in my life when I have felt alone. Every year as Father's Day approaches, I I relive memories of my father who died years ago. Just after he died, I remember after the family gathered at the funeral home to make all the arrangements, we then uh, separated and I was alone driving down the street. And I remember I was just overcome with grief. Uh, Tears filled my eyes. It was no longer safe to drive. I pulled over. I just wept. I remember I felt alone. Cars passing by. People all around me. But I felt alone. Now, I wasn't alone. I, I could have just turned around and gone back. Family members probably still at the funeral home. I wasn't alone. Felt alone but I wasn't alone. Jesus didn't just feel alone. He was alone. He wasn't just imagining he was alone. He was abandoned. He was alone as the hour of his suffering, the hour for which he came, approached. This is what it meant. This is what it meant to him, the Holy One, 
to bear away our sin. It meant that he would suffer and he would suffer alone. Judas would betray him. His disciples would all flee from him. Peter, James, and John would fall asleep in the garden and they would all flee when he was arrested. He would suffer and he would suffer for sinners like you and me and he would suffer alone. He would do so as a man with all of the feelings that accompany being abandoned by others and alone. That's what it meant to him to bear away our sin. Secondly, suffering for our sin through the crucible of human weakness meant distress of soul. Verse 33. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, he would suffer distress of soul. Listen, what what we observe of the Son of God and what we hear from the Son of God in the garden is unlike any previous description of the Son of God. From the beginning of his ministry, we we have observed him forgiving sin, healing the sick, Casting out demons, raising the dead, calming storms, walking on water, feeding thousands with a few loaves and fish, briefly transfigured, amazing all with his teaching, boldly confronting the religious authorities. He has been compassionate and he has been fearless, but all of this appears to change when he enters the garden. Everything changes in the garden. Actually, here is a savior we are unfamiliar with because here we observe his humanity on unique display. Here we discover what it meant to him to suffer through the experience of human weakness. Here in the garden, he begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. One translation reads, he began to be gripped by a shuddering terror and to be in anguish. He tells the disciples that his distress of soul is so great that death draws near. His distress of soul is so great that the Son of God in the garden is prematurely drawing near to death. His distress is so great there is a possibility he might die in the garden. drawing near to the experience of death prior to the crucifixion. He fell on the ground. I mean, it just appears to be the effect of his distressed soul. He can no longer remain physically upright. He is so distressed. He is so troubled. He is experiencing a shuddering terror and he falls to the ground. And this all appears to happen so abruptly. It's just all so sudden. There's nothing gradual about this because prior to this moment in the garden, there is no indication of deep distress of soul or shuddering terror. There's none. There's none of this that's evident during the Last Supper. Notice in Mark 14, verse 23, he took a cup 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. There's no evidence of shuddering terror during the Last Supper. And the meal concludes with a hymn. Look at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So he takes the cup, he gives thanks, gave it to them. They all drink it. The meal concludes with the singing of a hymn. So why? Why when he enters this garden is there this sudden, abrupt distress of soul? Why? Why why now? Like what is going on here? Well, actually, in overhearing Jesus pray, we discover What is going on here? We discover the cause of his turmoil and troubled soul as we overhear him pray in verse 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Oh, here's why. Here's why he's greatly distressed and troubled. It's this cup. It's the cup that he references and the contents of the cup. The cup and the prospect of drinking this cup. That's the explanation for his suddenly troubled soul. As he contemplated this cup and as he contemplated drinking the contents of this cup, he experienced a shuddering terror in his soul. What is this cup? What is this cup and what's in this cup? Well, this cup is a familiar image. It's a familiar image drawn from the Old Testament. The cup represents the wrath of God. That's what the cup represents. Isaiah says, the cup of his wrath in chapter 51. The cup and the contents of the cup were the bitter brew of the wrath of God against our sin. This is the shuddering terror and the deep distress for his soul. Listen, it was not the unique prospect or the immediate prospect of death that caused this sudden deep distress. No, Jesus' impending death was no surprise to him, no surprise whatsoever. He had spoken repeatedly and specifically about his death. He had just, listen, he had just concluded inaugurating a meal to remember his death. He knows he has to die. And he knows he will die by crucifixion. So, why in the garden this sudden shuddering terror and deep distress of soul? What's going on here? Well, in his commentary on Mark's gospel, James Edwards helps us to understand what's going on here when he writes, Nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus' agony and anguish in Gethsemane. Why, we may ask, is Jesus so assailed by the prospect of his death? Surely, we all know individuals who face the prospect of their deaths with greater composure and courage than does Jesus. Why does Jesus, who has foreseen his death and marched resolutely to Jerusalem to meet it, now quake before it? Well, the answer must be that Jesus is aware of facing something more than simply his own death. Not his own mortality, but the specter of identifying with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's wrath against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. 
It it is not the immediate prospect of his death that uniquely troubles his soul. It's the horrific reality of the impending death as sin bearer, becoming the object of the Father's furious, righteous wrath. It's the prospect of being pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities that produce sweats, sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. It, it, was, it was the prospect of him in the garden who knew no sin being made sin for us. And that prospect is so horrific that in the weakness of his humanity, he prays, listen, he prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Did you read that? You read it correctly? Jesus in the garden prays for an alternative to the cross. Just moments ago, he inaugurated a meal to remember his death and inform the disciples of the prophecy of Zechariah in relation to his death. Verse 27 again, it is written, I will strike the shepherd. And now he asks the father, if possible, If possible, Father, don't strike me. If possible, don't strike me. William Lane vividly describes this scene. I can't improve on this. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. And he staggered. As he did. As he contemplates being made sin with our sin. As he contemplates being crushed by God's wrath for our sin. In his humanity. In his sinlessness. He staggers. Doesn't sin. But he does stagger. And he appeals. He appeals for an alternative to the cross. He is anticipating now, not simply being abandoned by the disciples. No, now he's anticipating being abandoned by God the Father. And as he anticipates being abandoned by God the Father, he anticipates an interruption in their fellowship as he is made an object of God's wrath. He staggers. As, as he contemplates the true agonies of Calvary, He staggers. He doesn't sin, but he staggers and he appeals for an alternative. And listen, he makes that appeal three distinct times. Three times. He says, Father, is there an alternative to you striking me with your wrath? For sin on the cross. 
if possible, provide an alternative to the cross. Three times he staggers. Three times he makes this request. And three times this is what he hears from the Father. Silence. Oh, he's used to the voice of his Father. The voice of his Father breaking in at strategic moments saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's the voice he's used to hearing in this garden. It's just silence in response to this prayer for an alternative. Brothers and sisters, God the Father so loved the world. God the Father so loved sinners like you and me that he was silent when his son appealed for an alternative to the cross. This is what it meant for Jesus. This is what it meant for the Holy One to bear away our sin. It meant a distress of soul. It meant drinking the cup of wrath. And here, oh my, here's my challenge this morning. My challenge this morning. Listen, like Brad, like all who stand behind here to serve you. We work hard. We work hard to craft illustrations that will enable you to comprehend the text and to apply the text. And I can remember years ago when I first prepared a sermon on Gethsemane, I devoted actually a few hours to the creation of the appropriate, an appropriate illustration for the distress of soul being described here so that those I was serving could understand this experience of the Savior in the garden. But after a few hours of considering possible illustrations, I realized that this passage cannot adequately and accurately and effectively be illustrated from our experience. For there is nothing in our experience that resembles what is taking place here. In other words, I have no been there, done that to draw from. Because because only he has been there. Only he has done this. Only him. And so if I attempted to illustrate from my experience or the experience of someone else, I might leave the impression then that we can in some way relate to him. So there will be no illustration. We're going to honor the Savior this morning. And we're going to honor what took place in Gethsemane by not providing an illustration. What did it mean for him? It meant resolving to endure God's righteous wrath for our sin through the experience of human weakness. That's what it meant to him. And his distress of soul was so serious and significant that God sends an angel to strengthen him and protect him from dying prematurely in the garden. That's what it meant to him. Now, 
What does it mean for us? After we consider and explore what it meant for him, it's legitimate for us then to say, what does it mean for us? Well, this is what it means for us. First, recognize his love for you in his darkest hour. Recognize his love for you in his darkest hour. Because this was all for sinners like us. This, this was all for us. Listen, we, we are responsible for this suffering. My sin, your sin, that's the cause of this suffering. You can't, you can't enter Gethsemane without being reminded of your sin. Here in Gethsemane, I am reminded of the seriousness of my sin. I am reminded of the appalling nature of my sin in relation to God. My sin required this. If somehow I was able to be present and interrupt him in the midst of his cries for an alternative and said to him, what are you doing here? Why the deep distress of soul? Why sweat like drops of blood? What is happening here? A few moments ago, we were singing a hymn. Now, as I observe you, and shuddering terror is obviously in your soul. Why? Well, if I was able to do that, he would have made eye contact with me and said, because of your sin. This cup. It's because of your sin. That's why. You can't enter Gethsemane without being reminded this is what your sin requires. Your sin, my sin, required the suffering of the Son of God. You can't enter the Garden of Gethsemane and emerge unaffected by your sin. Can't do it. And you can't accompany Jesus into Gethsemane and emerge unaffected by his love. You can't emerge unaffected by his love. Oh my, fasten your eyes, fasten your eyes on the following words that reveal the love of the Savior for sinners like us. Fasten your eyes on verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Fasten your eyes on this sentence. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Will, yet not what I will, but what you will. Your will be done. Listen, this resolve to obey reveals the depth of his love for you and I. His, listen, his soul was being crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane before. His body would be crucified on a hill called Calvary. Gethsemane prepares us for Calvary. Gethsemane interprets Calvary. You'll never fully understand and appreciate Calvary if you don't first understand what took place in Gethsemane. Because in Gethsemane, he resolved to drink the cup of wrath on our behalf. He resolved to drink the cup that we deserve to drink so that he could give us the cup of salvation we don't deserve to drink. That's what's going on here. It is his love for us on full and compelling display. The cup, listen, the cup that should have been thrust into my hand, the cup that should have been thrust into your hand was instead 
taken out of our hand. Taken out of our hand by the one, the only innocent one. For him to drink and to drink it dry so that there would not be a drop of wrath left. So that he could put into our hands the cup of salvation he had just put into the hands of his disciples. He just gave them the cup of salvation in the last supper prior to entering the garden. And he then goes into the garden to take the cup of wrath that we deserve as our substitute. And this, what does it mean for us? Behold the love of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. Just, just behold it. Recognize, listen, his love for you in his darkest hour. This is his darkest hour to date. Recognize his love for you in this dark hour. Phil Riken helps us to perceive and to feel the effect of this when he wrote, if I understand Gethsemane at all, it means that Jesus loves me even more than I can imagine. It is not just that he died for me, but that he died this horrible, damnable, God-forsaken death that no one would ever want to die. He died this death because there was no other way for sinners to be saved. No easier road to redemption. No alternative to the cross. We will never have to suffer what our Savior suffered in Gethsemane or at Calvary for the very reason that everything he suffered there was in our place and on our behalf. So recognize his love for you in his darkest hour. And then finally, receive his care for you in your darkest hour. Receive his care for you in your darkest hour. Listen, dark hours, dark hours of temptation and testing and trial and suffering are inevitable for each and every one of us. New Testament scholar Don Carson has written, all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. Receive his care for you in your darkest hour. No doubt, given the size of this congregation, there are a number of people who come today finding your life to be in a dark hour. Oh my, I want to invite you to Gethsemane. And I want us to observe the wonders of Gethsemane. One such wonder is receive his care for you in your darkest hour. His unique care for us is revealed here in enduring this unique Suffering. It, listen, it, it's just so important that we distinguish his suffering from our suffering. Uh, don't, please, uh, oh, don't misunderstand. In making this distinction, please don't misunderstand. I don't want to minimize the severity of anyone's suffering who's present today. But I do want to say this, and this, this will actually, in an unexpected way, comfort you. Regardless of how we suffer, regardless of how severely we suffer in this life, this suffering in the garden... This suffering is unique. 
I've been now in pastoral ministry more than 40 years. And over those years, I've had a number of people reference to me their suffering as their Gethsemane. Nope. No, it's not. I don't think that's an accurate description of their suffering or my suffering because what the Savior experienced here is unique. I don't go through my own Gethsemane. And what I experience in the form of suffering should never be spoken of or compared to Gethsemane. Join with me today. Let's protect the uniqueness of Gethsemane. For I have never been given this cup to drink. Only he took this cup. Only he drank this cup. I don't have a Gethsemane. Only, listen, only he experienced Gethsemane so that you and I would never have a Gethsemane. Only he endured this so that it would become an immeasurable source of comfort to us and assurance, listen, in our darkest hours. You will have dark hours. In your darkest hour, you have this assurance. Your most serious problem is not that immediate dark hour. Your most serious problem is not that pain in whatever form, and I am not minimizing that pain in whatever form you are experiencing it. But your most serious problem has already been resolved in this garden when he drank committed to drink this cup, which he then exhausted on the cross. Your most serious problem, my most serious problem, is that God has a holy hostility toward me because of my sin. My most serious problem is I have a sinful hostility toward God because of my sin. That is going to have to be addressed and resolved or else I am justifiably so going to spend eternity in hell. God so loved the world that he sent his son and in this garden when his son plead pleaded three times for an alternative to the cross, the father was silent. Brothers and sisters, Don't you know, if there was an alternative to the cross, he would have intervened. If there was any other way, he would have intervened in response to the plea of his son. But there is no other way. Our most serious problem is addressed by God the Father through his son in his humanity, drinking the cup of wrath dry. He experienced hell for us in Gethsemane and on the cross so that we might be forgiven of our sin, freed from fear of future wrath. He experienced hell so that we might experience Heaven. So. So receive his care for you. Oh, listen, I, I'm sorry you are suffering. And you're in a church that cares about you if you are suffering. But this visit to the garden 
it can change your perspective of suffering. Because he suffered uniquely, resolving your most serious problem and my most serious problem, satisfying and exhausting the wrath of God against our sin so that we might be forgiven and never forsaken. He experienced hell, God forsaking him, darkness, abandoned by God on the cross. This was the preview, so that we might be forgiven and never forsaken and know an eternity in heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, we should be able to say, even in the midst of severe suffering, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's perplexing to a watching world. How could it be well with your soul? You are suffering. You are suffering severely. Here's how it's well with my soul. He suffered on my behalf and he drank this cup and he has addressed my most serious problem, my sin. Oh, the thought, not in part, but in whole, has been forgiven. All because he said, yet not what I will, but what you be will. Oh, but what you will. He, because he said, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And it is this one who ever lives to make intercession for us. This is the one who comforts us in our darkest hour. Listen. The Father sent an angel to comfort the Savior. The Son doesn't send an angel to comfort us. He comforts us himself. That's what it meant for him. This is what it means for us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Well, Father, we find ourselves on holy ground. This invitation to Gethsemane. As we overhear the Savior pray, as we observe his distress of soul, as we hear him appeal to you for an alternative to the cross, oh Lord, this is what it meant to him the Holy One, to bear away our sin. It meant drinking the cup of wrath through the crucible of human weakness as our substitute for our sin so that we might be the objects of his love, forgiven of our sin and assured that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that our future has been secured in heaven and not hell. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for drinking this cup and making your way from this garden to that lowly hill to exhaust it so that we might sing and say, hallelujah, 
what a Savior. In Jesus' name.